I was I was like a huge Flannery O'Connor fan too. So I awesome. love her idea of being like I relate to the idea of like being Christ haunted. So I feel like I'm like an atheist, but it's still just something that I think about a lot. Yeah, I was uh I was raised an atheist too and was like a Reddit atheist for much of my like teenage years. Um and then when I got to college and uh got severely depressed uh and had to find a way to affirm life uh I I sort of inadvertently came to God because uh in times of darkness you just seek salvation so yeah and I was kind of the opposite when I was depressed in college I was reading like conspiracy against the human race (laughs) (laughs) and like becoming an absolute materialist but at the same time like I feel like for me that is my kind of like religious framing and I like pushing through that to that it, it does become like a negative theology that I start to think of like the void or the presence of like absence as like something godlike. Yeah, okay. that's that's incredible. It sounds like we have uh, at least pretty similar uh, experiences with both both uh, our mystical experiences, but also this notion of absence as God's presence in a way. Uh, I've had the the same at least that's how I've interpreted my experiences in the same way. And I think it's interesting that we could all kind of find that as a flashpoint in, in our uh, experiences. I'm really interested in, we don't have to separate these two things, but I just for question's sake and for my interest, I'll separate, would you, and only if you're comfortable sharing um, these experiences to the, to, you know, to whatever comfort level is, is, is good for you. But uh, could you describe and maybe uh, give a little bit of an interpretive background to the idea of mystical experiences in your life. Are they something that's that's completely changed how you view a God or religion or spirituality? Um, and what have they kind of done for your life at those moments? Um, for me, I think like, well, I, I would divide like, two experiences I've had. So I've had an experience of salvation, which Mm -hmm. is like distinct from a mystical encounter. And so that was like primarily because I had like attempted suicide, which I talk on my podcast about like extensively. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was an instance where like, I felt as though like I was given another chance at life. Mm -hmm. And that at its time didn't affirm the existence of a higher being for me, but retrospect, like looking back on it, uh, it, I feel as though that was a signal from a higher power. Um, my like my initial like mystical experience um, was uh, admittedly I was on like LSD, which mm-hmm. I which is interesting because drug, drugs can be like a sort of uh, tool that can guide you towards like mystical experiences, but they're not like the the only thing that could lead you towards a mystical experience. And I think they're, they're really good. They're useful aid. Um, And so at that experience, um, I had like experienced like uh, complete like darkness and then like sudden like light, which I interpreted as like uh, a coming towards like God as an embodiment of divine light. Um, and from sort of then on, 
uh, I felt as though I, I felt as though I really resonated with uh, again like these uh, like God being embodied by some higher power higher like divine light as like Plato describes it you know light mm-hmm. is being the highest form and then like we're all like sort of in the shadows and darkness and we uh, we gradually approach that like uh, higher um, epistemic understanding um, and yeah I don't know that's that's that was like my mystical encounter and then just various other instances of sort of like seeing synchronicities in my life um yeah for me I don't want to get too heavy like it happened a long time ago I'm okay so like don't feel bad but like my dad had cancer and he did pass away but knowing that that was going to happen of course I was like extremely depressed during the time and then after it happened just this awareness of like you know, because it's different when you hear about someone else dying, but when it's actually someone that, like, you knew your whole life, it really changes how you view life and death, so it just felt, like, so much more real to me and, like, grounded, and going through that experience, like, it just changed how I was seeing the entire world, and I would just, like, like, think a lot about my own death because of it, because I guess just someone close to you dying to you, it makes you recognize your own mortality. It's not happening to someone else, like it's your life. So I had that like really strong, like feeling of like dread and then like death and absence. And I would just like lay in bed and listen to like repetitive music. But it's like in listening to that, it's not like I was like, I was depressed, but then it also became like, um, I don't know it's like picking a scab or something like thinking of like the nothingness started to become this like um like satisfying or like really appealing interesting experience like I just would think about that a lot and it almost became like meditative so I feel like I that is kind of why I relate to the negative theology I feel like just that gave me this presence even though I'm framing it in this like atheistic way at the same time from how I felt like as a sort of religious experience I could feel like something completely outside of myself so that's how like I feel about it it's it's really interesting to hear about uh, your experiences especially the aspect of of sort of a uh, a journey through a depression which I think is quite common with all uh not all, but in many uh, visionary mystical experiences, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, some some books I've heard it called like the dark night of the soul, or just some sort of journey where you need to sort of reach the bottom, so yeah. to speak, or reach you know sort of the end of your rope of you know these these thought processes have only gotten me this far, and there's really no way I can go further without changing the way that I that I think or the way that I believe that I am in the world. And I, I had the same experience where, uh, you know, growing up, I was uh, extreme nihilist and uh, much more of a hardcore Marxist materialist um, and much, much more politically uh, Luciferian, I would say. Uh, 
in, in many ways. And uh, I was also just very depressed, like just clinically depressed and had a lot of uh, sadness and uh, was also very suicidal and just could not see myself living uh, past the next year or so. Um, and I sort of finally decided I needed to do something different. And my first mystical experience, the most important one for me was uh, when I was teaching in Mississippi and I was just, you know, meditating and teaching for maybe about four, four or five months. Um, and something came over me uh, that I can only really describe as maybe like an Eastern style enlightenment um, in the small amount of things that I've read uh, about it. I was very much spiritual in, in the sense that my uh, soul sort of took on a kind of a new aura, so to speak, and my mind started working extremely differently. And I experienced that sort of pure presence that you can't quite describe where uh, you're 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 truly there in a way that is complete presence without any of that sort of absent thinking about what you're doing in the moment and an ability to sort of just see and love people and experience life in a truly joyful way that came from this newfound presence um, has completely changed my life since i've had many other mystical experiences and different kinds but uh mine was similar in in both of your mystical experiences in that it came only after I had exhausted every intellectual option that I had for justifying life and justifying what I wanted to do with my life. And it was only once that was burned off very painfully that I truly thought, well, you know, this hardcore materialism that I have and this nihilism is complete bullshit. I can't sustain it anymore because to me you know the world showed itself as something truly complex and magical in its structure and it showed me that the material and, and the things that we deal with as humans are quite literally sort of the lowest on the totem pole of importance not that the stakes aren't very high it's just that uh to to believe that you are just that material and your thoughts and your ego um, is truly a sort of prison version of life and not life as it truly presents itself. At least that's that's how yeah. I saw it. I want to just uh, bring up the point, because I feel like I've had not the same experiences as all three of you guys had. Um, but I want to connect this to your guys' influence in terms of Bataille. Um, like Bataille's notion of the sacred, Bataille's notion of limited experience, uh, because I think that this, you know, influences, you know, this negative theology theology that we're speaking about in regards to the, you know, Bataille's notion of the limited experience or the erotic. I think that really ties well with his theoretical framework and kind of shines light as to why maybe Bataille, figures like Bataille or figures like Simone Weil or Spinoza um, are in your repertoire in terms of theory. So uh, if you guys want to just expand a little bit on that. Yeah. Um, Bataille's, uh, so Bataille's a fascinating figure to me because he, like, I think later converted into Catholicism and then, like, unconverted from Catholicism. Um, and uh, his, 
his idea of like the limit experience really resonates with my like sort of mystical experience and that it was like truly a limit experience where like it brought you towards like uh, a higher transcendence like this uh this sort of really low basely uh sort of experience that he describes uh is that that guides you towards like transcendence and he ties that strongly to like erotic experiences as well um which I think is also really beautiful um um another thing I like about Bataille is how he draws a lot from Gnosticism and before I became interested in Catholicism uh I was interested in Gnosticism though and though I didn't consider myself a Gnostic um I found that Gnosticism resonated a lot with my uh theological understandings and I came to Christianity from a purely Gnostic perspective and I think that's why um figures like Simone Weil and Plato and Bataille uh are such influential (laughs) figures to me because uh their you know Christian theology is sort of based on a Gnostic understanding of like um you have these two dualistic forces in the universe like darkness and light and those are the two contrasting elements and when you go to towards one extreme uh it guides you towards another um and yeah it seems like the um what is it called like the i don't want to put it in terms of a dialectic but um in a way it is a, yeah. a, a dialectic um yeah i just want to mention the you, you bring up the you know eroticism and you know i think bataille calls it uh I'm going to butcher in French, le, le mort petit, or something along those lines, yeah. a little death. A small, a little death, yeah. <laughs> and um, I think with Bataille, because you mentioned his, a little bit of his uh, bibliography, uh, how he did convert to Catholicism, kind of had a disillusionment in his faith, and then kind of became like this staunch, uh, I wouldn't say atheist, but um, maybe like atheist. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. How would you tie that in, in terms of like this the reversal I guess that you've had because you mentioned that you grew up uh pretty atheist or both of you have had this you know this atheist experience especially with the what is it called the new atheist movement um how would you say or how would you reconcile um that this negative theology this atheism with this you know this journey towards the transcendence um yeah I think like describing it as dialectic is really good because you know you begin at this uh sort of position as Hegel describes a pure skepticism and denial of everything um and that as a denial of God man um and then you you know negate that and it's like you come to accept God um and accept that and you know, reverse your skepticism and then arrive at a later point of um, beginning and almost reflective of where you initially were, but towards like a higher, like tra- transcendent point of knowledge. So it's like at, at the final stage of dialectic understanding, it's 
you still have that form of skepticism, but it's not absolute skepticism in the form of like uh, indeterminate denial of God, but rather um, um, a denial of God, perhaps uh, not indeterminately, but like determinately. And I think perhaps that's what's going on in like Bataille's like uh, theological development is he he came towards like an understanding of God, but from a Christian perspective, he later understood like there was like perhaps something flawed in like the theology or something like that. And I, I feel as though like, you know, I, my, as, as my intellectual interests like expand and develop, I don't know what comes of like my sort of theological or spiritual, um, you know, as, like my understanding. I don't know what there is like left, but I'm sure like as I grow, it will change. So, yeah. It kind of reminds me of like the, like the, I guess how you described it, the like the via negativa, like um, how you, you know, go through this, like almost like this determinate negation to towards transcendence. And it's kind of like um, Meister Eckhart's, you know, notion of like trying to describe God, not through what God is in a way, but what God is not. Yeah. I think the, the challenge with a lot of this stuff and I think Hegel understands this well uh, when he describes the difference between a the the natural religion and the institutional. I think those are the terms they use. Yeah. Uh, it's the dialectic is between you know uh, the sort of event and revelation of some original you know insight from the Godhead. Like for instance, mm-hmm. the mystery of Golgotha. You know when Jesus dies and the the amazing things that happen that day represent something that has almost an absolute interpretation that can be interpreted any number of ways or has to be interpreted and then it becomes institutionalized in uh you know the discourse of the church the institutions of the church the hierarchy of the church and so by the time i'm born a christian it's it's almost a satanic uh, institution in the way in sense, you know, she describes the beast or Satan as essentially just any group of people that are uh, having their individual souls being repressed or told what to do by this mindless beast of an organization. And I think that was very hard for me to deal with when I was going through my early Christianity, because it was so repressive towards me. And I didn't believe any of the tenets of this old Christianity that's based on, you know, uh, what your pastor says every Sunday. That just didn't make sense to me. And I think I rejected uh, Christianity outright, but what I was really rejecting was the institution of Christianity as it stands in the 21st century. And I think my return has has led me uh, to uh, see all religions in that same vein. Um, that all religions have some sort of great insight into the Godhead, but we'll always have to have some sort of uh, negative uh, interpretation, meaning just like something restrictive um, 
towards what the original absolute event was. Yeah, I completely agree. My initial atheism was really informed by uh, sort of my disdain for the the, uh, religious institutions Mm -hmm. and not really uh, an understanding of God or like theological doctrine. It was just purely, uh, I didn't like the idea of the church and the authority of the church. Um, Right. Yeah. Which is which is fair. I mean, the church is one of the most murderous genocidal institutions in the history of the world, mm-hmm. simply because it's an institute. It's a powerful, long-standing institution, and it still has a lot of power. And I guess we're lucky that it's not determining the geopolitical course of events so much anymore. But it still is this like that's why I kind of call it this: this is a satanic organization, which yeah. is just the natural polarity of any. A religious institution when it has to become increasingly oppressive and become uh, an institution of this world with goals that are material rather than exactly yeah rather than the otherworldly goals that started it in the first place which is why I, I love when Paul calls it the church and sojourn in sojourn in Corinth because the church in Christianity is not supposed to be something of this world it's supposed to be a continual sojourn into mm-hmm. you know the, the human realm, the material realm, in order to do some sort of divine work, some sort of, uh, mm-hmm. what do you call it, a vocation, a spiritual mm-hmm. vocation. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to just go ahead and bring up the topic in regards to, like, spiritual experiences regarding drugs. Um, mm-hmm. And tying that to, like, limited experiences and, uh, obviously, Platonism. Um I have a pretty funny experience. Just it's really short. Um, one time, the time that I took the highest dose of LSD, um, I told everybody I, I was listening to music. Um, not even like crazy, like anything wild. It was just like just music. And I was like, yeah, I saw the platonic forms, and I saw the platonic solids, and all, and all of this stuff. And, and so I told. You saw the prison sinners in the cave <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was like i saw the sun and then i went mad um the laughter that Bataille talks about uh, which yeah. ironically enough i think that, that um sometimes when people say like Bataille's a materialist i'm like no he's actually a platonist but <laughs> more mm-hmm. on that another time yeah uh, yeah but i, I guess i just want to see your guys's experiences with drugs or if you had anything similar to that or uh, unpack what i said or anything like that um, yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, the, the mystical experiences I've had in my life were aided by uh, drugs, LSD, and like shrooms. Um, and I wouldn't say, I, and I wouldn't say that like drugs are the only way in which like one experiences mystical encounters, but they could certainly aid uh, mystical encounters, which is important. Um, and um, yeah, I think like with the the with drugs and hallucinogens specifically, they can guide you towards like the experience of like transcendence and unity, which are two experiences closely tied with like mystical encounters, um, and those were uh, sort of like the experiences I had experiences of. Uh, 
transcendence from the material realm and then sort of unity uh, with uh, me and like this higher power and mm -hmm. feeling like one. Um, yeah. Um, Absolutely. I have a quick question about that. Um, in terms of yeah. like drug use, because I know that a lot of people have this kind of like idea in their head that like, okay, like drugs, it's a, like a really material thing. Um, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of ways that people kind of go about this. They're like, well, it used to be mystical. There's like a deep foundational um, connection between psychedelics or any particularly psychoactive component and its connection to like spiritual realm or spirituality. Um, but I guess my question would be, and this is open for everyone, um, how do you guys reconcile that materiality with that which is you know not extensive so like the spiritual or the platonic realm um yeah that's interesting because uh it, i think like this is the reason why i really resonate with Bataille's philosophy and his idea of like base materialism is that he's not fully a materialist but he acknowledges that like experiences you have that are material such as er uh, erotic experiences like bodily experiences and those encounters and like you know drug use uh are aids to which you can experience uh trans transcendental uh ones and um non-material um uh, sort of like conscious uh experiences so yeah i don't know that's that's that it's it's difficult to reconcile but i think uh the ties the figure that does it really well yeah <laughs> yeah were you gonna go uh macy oh i just agree and then too with like because like a lot of the experiences with drugs too it's like that sort of ego death it just ties into the whole the tie and limit experiencing and even that it's like not even like a, a literal death but a metaphorical death yeah i think that's that's uh that's really true and i think that's important for drugs and mystical experiences i think uh Shizak turned this but he calls it the second death meaning a symbolic death before you die mm -hmm. um which i i think is sort of getting at what goes on when you're engaging in uh, these types of rituals or these types yeah. of experiences. Um, I think Bataille was sort of on the cutting edge of all of these things, but I, I, uh, I think it, it becomes difficult when you're dealing with like these material things, especially like drugs and say sex magic are two of the more simple ones that, uh, you know, like when I left Christianity, that just like seemed like the funnest and like, you know, the most anti-Christian thing I could do. And I think there was a lot of interesting insights from like, you know, Luciferian adventures and, and drugs and sex. But uh, I think what I learned through my usage of, of those things is that um, just because you don't know what you're doing doesn't mean it has, doesn't have any ramifications. And I think Bataille understood that too, especially when it came to human sacrifices and acephal. Is that how you pronounce it? Acephal? Acephal? Yeah. Acephal? Okay. Acephal. I just finished reading the uh, uh, that book where it's like a collection of their rituals and stuff. And it does say that like, you know, Bataille, uh, they were really into 
finally doing ritual sacrifice and they got some people to do it. Like Michelle already was really depressed. So he really wanted to do it and he didn't get to do it. But I think they sacrificed a woman once and it like kind of ruined Ty's life. Like it, he kind of was never the same because I don't think he fully knew what he was doing. And for me, I always, I always resonated with that and that it always, there's always like, there's the question of will for sure when you're doing magic or when you're doing something like that. But there's also the question of uh, a complete knowledge of the functions that you're engaging with that becomes very difficult. And I think the, the more like chaotic magic like that has a tendency to backfire because of its, uh, I, w- I don't want to say a lack of seriousness, but maybe just a lack of knowledge of the stakes of what you're doing with your soul and even your body. Um, I think it can come back in negative ways. Like Crowley, obviously he grew up very, very Christian and kind of reacted to that going the opposite direction. But, you know, he was a major drug addict for the end of his life. And a lot of the shit he did ruined him in the end, you know? And so for me, I've, I've seen friends, you know, become schizophrenic because they used drugs, you know, or, you know, ruin, ruin long-term, you know, life prospects because of these things. And so it's, Nick Land. it's always, <clears throat> yeah, Nick Land, of course, uh, another good <laughs> example of this. It's, it's, it's interesting that the, the liberation of drugs and sort of the new human potential movement since the sixties has kind of, we've kind of been lab rats, right? Like LSD only came out in what, 62, something like that. And it's not researched. And all of these things are, are highly used and lead to mystical experiences, but it's almost like we're, we're, we're taking experimental experiences and seeing what they do. And I think the consequences uh, should not be, uh, should not be forgotten when we're dealing with like high powered spiritual weapons like like those yeah um exactly um I, I it's interesting that you bring up uh Bataille's like human sacrifice thing mm-hmm. because um I had read somewhere that they when trying to organize the human sacrifice uh they they found it they found that they had trouble finding the person who would do the sacrificing, mm-hmm. but they, they it was easy to find the person who would be sacrificed. Yeah. Right. So that speaks to the idea that like uh, people are willing to become like sacred objects themselves, but no one wants to be the the sort of person that violates a sort of moral law or uh, the person that has to deal with the ramifications of uh, their concept, uh, their actions or, the consequences of it ethically so yeah they're yeah, all catholics that's, that's interesting sorry what, what did you say cute i'm like they were all catholics <laughs> yeah at the end of the day i mean it's it's interesting too because they're trying to counter like they're kind of not faustian enough and that they're not willing to sacrifice or like make these demonic packs but they they explicitly formed their occult organization to counter the highly faustian fuels uh, Thule society in Germany, right? It's it's yeah. supposed to be like almost an anarchist uh, response to fascist esoteric groups, and it it always did strike me as interesting that that uh, you know this you know you Heinrich Himmler did not have a problem sacrificing people for mm-hmm. very little, you know what I mean? But so, 
Safil uh, had a, like you're saying, had a really hard time finding the person who would do the sacrificing, you know? It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty remarkable. It speaks to definitely, I think it speaks to the spiritual malice of modern society um, in, in many ways. It reminds me of uh, the story from Germany, I think 20 years ago, where someone put out on Craigslist that they wanted to like kill and eat somebody. And mm-hmm. uh, like 10 people signed mm-hmm. up, you know, and he picked Ten, one and he did yeah. it. And he went to jail because mm-hmm. Germany doesn't have that kind of more libertarian contract law so it was just against the law to do it no matter what but it was an interesting philosophical case of uh if people are willing to do it why is it necessarily wrong but Mm -hmm. again it's like does that guy know what he's doing does he does he really know what Mm -hmm. what that will cause him in the next life you know the amount of karma it's going to take to burn that shit off it's not easy you know what i mean that's many lives so it's just (laughs) it's hard to, to make decisions with such large stakes when we have such little knowledge of the stakes themselves, which is mm-hmm. always hard. Precisely. That kind of brings me to a question that just popped up based on what you said, Young, which is, uh, I guess, my, your guys's or everyone's understanding of like, like the moment after death. So what, what does come after death if there is something, if you guys have um, like a, like a, uh, what, what is it called um like a metaphysics for that or anything of that sort well like i i think um it's interesting because uh a lot of um negative theology um or like simone Weil specifically she she talks about void as uh that of like uh cape void as uh housing a lot of capacity for potentiality mm-hmm. which i think i hold the same perspective in that like with death uh you death and void i think like those are two like interconnected concepts because with death you experience like nothingness and void um that can um bring about great abundance multiplicities and potentialities yeah i don't know that's kind of my idea
Yeah. 
What about uh, what about you? Like, I'm not not the one to ask because <laughs> really I'm like the atheist Christian. I'm like I don't I think it's nothing, but I've learned to, you know, to accept that and it fascinates me and uh, I like that's why I think it's so important <clears throat> to like live life in a, like a proper way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to believe in this sort of wheel of death and rebirth type type thing where I, I tend to believe in reincarnation for for most of it. I do believe that there are ways to exit that wheel through maybe Christ developed one, you know, in esotericism, they believe that Christ basically through a sacrifice opened up a hole almost in the wheel of death and rebirth near the Draco constellation. Um, for school for souls to escape out of I, I generally believe that we're not capable of of becoming not these karmic beings yet but that there's probably a very small minority of souls that get harvested like I don't know every ion like maybe 20 to 60,000 souls of like saints who are just ready for the next sort of initiation into a new new part of the universe or new stage of existence um, I, I, I like to speculate on it just because it's so fun. And I think the best, uh, channel text I ever read was, uh, the, the raw materials, which are, uh, a bunch of materials collected from sessions, talking to the mind, body, spirit complex known as raw, the God raw. But at this point, you know, he's like, well, you know, you understand that gods are basically just hyper advanced aliens, you know? So he basically answers this group's questions about, the universe and obviously the Ra is also the one who channeled Crowley the text the book of the law so it's interesting to see the connections between the two and and the whole sort of cosmogenesis of Ra but I generally believe that those types of accounts are probably more accurate than we give them credit for um, in many ways especially channeled texts from supposed entities um, and cross-referencing those I think you can start to see a more like functional uh like cosmic hierarchy that is sort of just playing out infinitely in many ways so I, I i tend to believe we're just kind of spiritual peasants who are at the first stage of a very long initiation into higher levels of i don't know people call it consciousness maybe it's just you know higher levels of the soul i don't know okay well with that oh sorry Oh, no, I, I was just uh, saying that I'm inclined to agree with that, too. <laughs> um, I was going to just mention uh, maybe a follow-up to tie that directly into uh, Dre Guys' podcast um, in regards to, you know, we mentioned this spiritual, like, ascension, um, which is, you know, tied to notions of the phallus. Um, I saw that you guys tweeted the other day about... Um, you know, this, oh, my you know, shit posts. <laughs> in regards to, yeah, in regards to the sun as more of a flow state, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, apparatus as opposed to this phallic structure that a lot of religion um, or theology points to. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I want to tie that directly with your guys's like, because I know that you guys also have a lot of influence with some, I wouldn't say accelerationist, but you dip your toes in, in accelerationist <laughs> thought. Um mm -hmm. And, you know, you have figures like uh, Deleuze and Guattari, um, Nick Land. And so how do you guys yeah. also approach this, you know, not so, you know, ascending metaphysics 
slash epistemology. How do you guys also reconcile or think about this, like, you know, decentralized or bottom, bottom up um, ways of thinking? Um, I'm, I feel like I'm not too well read in uh, accelerationist philosophy. Yeah. And uh, so I, I wouldn't either like, I, I don't like affirm or deny that I'm an accelerationist, but it, it's, its concepts are interesting. And Deleuze and Guattari are, uh, you know, influential figures to me as well. Um, and I think as we talked before, uh, Deleuze and Guattari and Nick Landis, well, they're influenced by vitalist philosophy, which I, I would argue that like a lot of vitalism comes from also like a, a theological perspective in that like you have the existence of something that's completely non-material that's within like all forms of life uh and and it's like the the development and progression and the potentialities that uh these uh vital life forms house uh that become like definitive of uh or become yeah become definitive of a sort of like metaphysical being um yeah, I think okay. that's that's always been the interesting eschatology of accelerationism too. Is in many ways it's a hypermaterial analysis of the postmodern world. It, it does a decent job of identifying the core sort of uh, algorithmic power systems that are that are accelerating, and at the other time it's it's like because of how you know little kind of tradition it has, it draws on sort of a like Lovecraftian sci-fi eschatology of sort of extrapolating to, well, then any of these sentient beings could become, you know, new hierarchical beings in our lives. And it almost mm -hmm. has this deep, uh, uh, to me, it has this deep like hope and fear at the same time, the same way Lovecraft did of the return of these great ones as like some sort of cosmic justification for how shitty we are in many ways, or how bad humans are and how good our computers are. It tends to make these these deeply spiritual uh, claims while simultaneously being the least spiritual political and philosophical program I've ever seen. It, it's an odd mix. I think uh, like we talked about last time, the, the sort of Crowleyan connection between the two uh, mm -hmm. fits in really well. Like obviously Nick is obsessed with 333 and uh, have you ever read uh, the book of the lies by Crowley? No, I haven't. It's interesting. But we're obsessed it's with mostly... the three, 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 two. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's it's his like Kabbalistic poetry book. Yeah. Um, it's Library three thirty three. So it's 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 that book, and it's it's interesting because it lays out basically the the disintegration of every lie, you know or every mm -hmm. kind of false, it's like a deeply Gnostic text, but it identifies 333 with, with complete disintegration, which to me makes sense with like what Nick wants, so to speak, this, this, uh, this number of the disintegration of the entirety of the material world. Mm. 
Just I was going to say, this brings up three separate points that I want to <laughs> directly tie into. Uh, the first one is the direct connection, because um, I feel like we've been in a similar line of flight, to use Deleuzian language, in regards to Nietzsche being used as, um, like, for example, I, I bring up that this Nietzsche's like affirmation of man is kind of like the new slave morality. And I think you mm-hmm. mentioned mm-hmm. in one of your um, other podcasts, I forgot which one, which episode, but I think it's regarding your Christian conversion, um, where you talk about <laughs> uh, like how Nietzsche now, in a way, maybe would be like a figure to use to kind of like affirm, well, one, a vitalism, but a vitalism that's directly tied to Christianity. I don't know if you want to uh, speak more on that. Um, yeah, I think like, uh, Nietzsche death of God is, you know, the idea that man needs to find a new way of, uh, meaning upon like the, the growing secular society. And he, he argued that like Christianity was notably a slave morality, which I, on this aspect, I would disagree with Nietzsche, and we could use Nietzsche's idea of like um, the death of God as a way of actually like returning back to God in a way, and like um, it, it's it's become like an interesting reversal, wherein like the new the new sort of like slave morality is like this sort of really ultra hyper materialist. Uh, science uh, positivist uh, thinking mm-hmm. where you become a complete slave towards like um, like the empirical sciences and having right. to understand everything through a purely like uh, logical deductive like way um, and not um, through a understanding of like the non-material, and so um, yeah, I I think we can understand like slave morality as we can see how like slave morality has developed and changed. Yeah, as yeah. secular society has developed. Yeah, and I agree a lot with what she just said. Like, even though I'm saying like, oh, I'm such a materialist. At the same time, I really despise like the positivism and the enlightenment thinking and the urge for rationality constantly. Like that in and of itself is its own like, you know, slave morality and its own religion that's been constructed. And so I hate like <laughs> the actual like people today that are like, oh, like we are just like neurons in a meat suit. I think that is like extremely reductive of human experience. Mm-hmm. And I really despise that worldview. Yeah, yeah me too. It's like super anti-vitalist and you know you yeah. you get figures like people say like actually no it's super vitalist because blah 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 like man can do this and he he should affirm his own morals and, and will to power and it's like that's kind of a cartoon um because i don't think that's what i don't think that's actually what nietzsche meant and if it did i think that if he was writing today he actually would like affirm pretty much what you guys are saying which yeah. is that vitalism isn't reductive to to like the material components of of man like that like it's not it's non-reductive you can't come down to just that strata of reality 
yeah, yeah. stop the marvelization of Nietzsche philosophy, please. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, the most famous Nietzschean vitalists of the past hundred years are like Dick Cheney, you know? It's like, th <laughs> those are the people literally who call themselves Nietzschean vitalists because, I mean, it, it sort of reaffirms an elitist belief in people that everyone else is meant to be a slave in many ways, mm -hmm. which Nietzsche wasn't really saying. He was identifying, which I think is kind of a slave morality, but I disagree with Nietzsche there too, in that I, I believe that Christianity is not necessarily a slave morality. It's it's a slave religion. It's a religion for slaves. You know, uh -huh. I believe Yahweh is the God of liberating slaves from slavery. Uh -huh. He's a desert God that tends to help people out of slavery. And that's sort of the history of, of Yahweh as a God to me. Yeah. And so there that touches me more deeply, um, you know, like when Simone Weil says, you know, I had the mark of a slave after she worked for a year in a factory and she knew she would never not be a slave anymore once she had experienced that, that uh, it's, it's, it's not like, like having a religion for slaves to me is what the church is all about. It's, it's truly a liberatory metaphysical framework that should always be in almost like this continual like cosmic Trotskyan revolution until everybody is free uh, from the cross, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, I think like when uh, Nietzsche is talking about like slave morality, he's really talking about like mental imprisonment and the idea mm -hmm. that like we fall susceptible to believing in like what the, the, the sort of like people around us believe or like the homogeny of thought. Um, and, uh, but I don't, but I disagree with Nietzsche in that, like, uh, being a quote-unquote slave in the sense that, like, uh, you're sort of uh, submissive or in, in a way towards, like, something is not necessarily a bad thing. Like, moral servitude is not bad. And I no. think, like, this this touches on a profoundly, like, Christian principle as well, in that, like, we are morally subservient to, like, God, in a way. And I think, like, that subservientness and, like, servitude um, and submission, surrendering ourselves towards, like, a higher power, ultimately, is, like, will bring us some sort of liberation in a way. Yeah. It goes back to Hegel's self-consciousness, too. Like, ideally, two self-consciousnesses will understand that they are one another and validate one another. But in the master-slave dynamic, there's always going to be one that wants to overpower the other. But Hegel says, yeah. this one, the higher one, doesn't know who it is because it's forcing its self-consciousness on the other, whereas the slave actually has a great degree of self-consciousness because it's playing yes. this double game where it has to be the slave, but it realizes it's not actually the slave under any other circumstance. So I think yeah. it's better to be a slave in many in many ways exactly and it's like the idea that um you know uh the master wouldn't be the master without having a slave his right. identity is purely contingent on the existence of a slave exactly and so the master is not a full master themselves it's not a full yeah. subjective being yeah because yeah. it's deterrent it's it's slaving or it's it's slave status comes from its inability to ever know itself yeah so i i agree with that completely like, how do you guys feel about, like, God posting slash angelicism posting, like that, like, kind of LARPy, LARPy, but not so... slave morality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, that well, <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty. Uh, do you want to expand on that? <laughs> that's actually pretty funny. Yeah, like, that's a I, good point. Mm-hmm. I guess with the LARPing thing, it's like I don't know. Of course, it is just fake. Like I don't know. I feel like that's the one good thing about like religion is that it's like a genuine passion, a genuine overwhelming feeling, and like something like you know spiritually rich. So. I really hate seeing the people just doing it in like a completely empty, like mimetic way. Yeah. It's like just, you know, it's just that it's just fake. Um, And I feel like that fake aesthetic, like purity, like thing they go for is like, just, you know, it's even worse. It's like just an affront. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and also, I don't know, like the whole angelicism project just seems like, so nihilistic to me i guess it is all about extinction i feel like yeah. because i haven't read the Substack recently anything i say i'll i'll be told by fans that i just don't get it but <laughs> i just feel like it's like the recognition of extinction that it has is like so different from my own and it just feels like a very nihilistic one yeah i would agree with that and to your point about like the mimetic christians i i think it's it's interesting this is like a new breed of like non-christian you know it reminds me of when jesus tells the guy you know should i pray alone or should i pray with these other people and jesus says well if you pray alone you know god will answer your prayer but if you pray for other people you know like publicly you're praying and showing that you pray and you're not humble about it then you've already received what you wanted which is just the public adoration which is basically mm-hmm. to me like what the trad cats are. It's like, it's like wearing Christianity as a fancy dress, you know, or as an aesthetic. Yeah. It doesn't have any uh-huh. vocational influence on them. And then that's like just the. It's not even like anything new either. That's mm-hmm. like the whole reason many people like have problems with Christianity and religion because it's like people that are hypocritical with it. Or you're preaching that you have these values, but you're not enacting it in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I mean, for me, I think the great point of Christianity, which I think Derrida points out in one of the essays in Gift of Death, when he's reading that Christian European philosopher, the Christian European philosopher argues that Europe can never be fully Christian because there's this thing called incorporation and repression of ideas. And Christianity has to deal with the incorporation and repression of the Greek system, which is based on ethics. Meanwhile, Christianity's only ethic is unconditional love. So you get this kind of mistake that christians make where uh they're making these ethical claims as if they are the ethical claims of christ himself or god when in reality god has been and jesus have both been very upfront with what the only rule is and it's you know unconditional love and so you have this kind of fake uh elitism that at its core is and not christian it's it's dealing with some sort of repressed paganism Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah, the. Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to very briefly ma- mention that that's like the biggest insight about Christianity, which is kind of tying back to what I mentioned earlier about the how like my approach of religion is very like Hellenistic, which is just that um, when it when you know it's when Jesus mentions that uh, it's like how will we know that that you know this is I forgot what he, I forgot what exactly how the quote goes, but it's like how will we know that you're that you're here. And it's like when you guys are in communion together, uh, that's that's when you know that I'm there. And it's like that's 
that's when Jesus, you know, they use throughout the New Testament the word uh, agape, which is also used in uh, philosophy, which is, you know, like that brotherly love. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people just don't, like that. that is the church. Agape is the church. It's not like a religious like state or or institution right. or anything like that. And I think Simone Weil also has um, kind of connotations to that in her writings. I, what was it, John? We read it, the um, abolishment of Yeah, the politicals. abolishment of all political parties. Yeah, which uh, I think she, what she's kind of clearly demonstrating is just that it's the church is agape, that, that it's communion with one another, communion with those who are afflicted. Sorry, yeah, I, I interrupted your point. Oh, no, it's okay. I, I almost like forgot. It's okay. Um, but I think I was going to mention something about the distinction between form and content and that uh, a lot of like these like Christian LARPers nowadays just adapt the form of Christianity without its content. And so it's ultimately like lacking of any meaning. They adopt like the aesthetic of it without actually like believing or feeling principally uh uh, the passions for God or anything. Um, and I, I guess this relates to back, back what uh, Young mentioned in, in an interesting way about uh, Derrida um, uh, and how uh, it seems as though um, the, the form in which Christianity takes place is that of like uh, continuous like the idea of Greek ethics or, or like mm-hmm. a lot of our surface understanding of Christianity um, via its like appearance or immediacy is that of uh, like moral law or like uh, abiding by the laws of an institution, mm-hmm. biblical doctrine, um, but its content uh, which gets revealed when you like deeply examine it is that of like uh, Christ- genuine Christianity, which is unconditional love right yeah yeah i think that ties back directly to what you guys were mentioning about you know nietzsche and and the slave morality which is not like like you mentioned it's like yes connecting or being subject to the one true transcendent which is you know um god but it's almost kind of like affirming like the one commandment which or the one rule which is unconditional love which is you know it's it's an ethic it's an ethic by which, or a moral that you do affirm yourself. It's it's like mm-hmm. it's um it's kind of like Plato's problem of the the one and the many, um, mm-hmm. which is it can be applied, you know, it can be applied universally and it can be in, in, in instantiated um, across different instances. But it like when you see it, you recognize it. It is a Platonic, um, like it is a Platonic form. You know, you know it when you see it. That's that's the whole notion of um, the intellect. I think one thing religion, just to sort of make a point based off of that, that's tangentially related, one thing that religious and spiritual experiences and journeys that I've taken have done is uh, really proven to me that like the mind is, is just like almost a robotic tool of association and uh, information processing, that is not like the totality of your being. It's not even just mind and body that that there's some sort of spark that makes you separate from what your mind is and that the mind is is often something that tricks you like one of my favorite quotes is the the quote from milton's paradise lost where the devil tells him look the mind can make heaven out of hell and a hell out of heaven you know you can live in 
materially bad circumstances and be happy if you're someone like the devil and you can live in extremely you know utopian circumstances and your mind can make it seem uh like hell and i think to me that speaks to the role the mind plays and the limitations the mind plays in our relationship to the universe and our relationship to god that you know timothy o'leary used to used to say before he went to bed that the robot needed to sleep and i think that's very true on a on a deep level that that there's sort of things that make us uh material automatons and a lot of us a lot of our sort of functionality is a material automaton and at the same time there's some little spark in in the back of your soul or just somewhere in there that endows you with something greater than the sum of your parts which to me is is a big lesson of the soul god religion whatever you want to call it that the sort of like you're saying this positivist empirical science-based approach to, to understanding what the human is completely completely uh you know reduces that fact to nothing and that to me is representative of maybe just like the continued fall from grace from god's grace into deeper and deeper darkness so like that's mm -hmm. just going to be the natural response to things is a hyper materialist hyper uh like anti-soul mm -hmm. i do have one last question which we usually ask all of our guests who come on which is um given that we live in a you know how you guys mentioned a hyper atheist hyper materialist world um you know completely dominated by global capitalism what are techniques or what are things that you would like to like leave the audience in terms of how to live um we you know we ask the platonic question what is a what is a good life so if you have any like slight insights or anything like that um anything goes I, I still have Mishima on the mind from our last episode we did so I would just say like I like the way he approached life like even if we live in a secular society and like you yourself have this awareness of uh, materialism you can still seek out sublime experiences um beauty and art and all these other things that help you to communicate with other human beings and feel connected, there's still so much that we can do. And I think for me, in the absence of God, I seek out art um, and beauty. Mm -hmm. So I think yes. that's just a very important thing to to cherish. And you can use that to help you get through any kind of suffering. Precisely. I, I think that's it. I, I also had Mishima on my mind when you asked that, and it's a very principle of our podcast as a, a beauty-centered uh, uh, Greek, uh, Grecian-urn uh, worshipping podcast that um, I think you can ultimately affirm life through art um, and seek out truth through art and God within art as well. Um, and so experiencing beautiful things and beauty uh, will guide you towards uh, affirming life. Oh, Cute puppies will help you puppies. too. <laughs> yeah, so they're the most beautiful thing. Oh, He's a sweetie. PJ made an official appearance on the podcast. That's uh, more. That's his, that's his official podcast <laughs> appearance of the week. <laughs> Perfect. So uh, I guess that with that being said, 
Um, where can we find you guys? Uh, or are there any future projects that you guys want to mention or anything? This is the plug-in spot. Um, I guess just listen to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We'll make sure to um, link your guys' stuff. Yeah, the cuteness unit. <laughs> on um, Patreon, and then I'm at cuteness333, and she's at evilperson333 <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah, if you guys haven't listened to the podcast, you absolutely should. It's probably the best podcast out there right now, um, in my opinion. So everybody should listen. Everybody should subscribe. Um, they do really cool stuff. Everybody should listen to the Mishima episode. Uh, what was that, last week or two weeks ago? Was that last week? Like last, yeah. last week, yeah. So it's so it's a very recent episode, but I absolutely loved that one. Uh, we really appreciate you guys coming on and talking about your oh, personal thank experience. You. We love talking to you guys. Times. Oh, you too. Yeah. It's always the we'll best. We'll be happy to talk to you guys anytime. Mm-hmm. Hurts, doesn't it? <laughs>